Joseph Weil clasped his hands together, sat back in his chair, and observed the other patrons of the pool room. The only thing he had left to do was wait. Around him, men sat nursing their drinks and rolling their tickets between their fingers. Cashiers organized the money on hand behind a glass partition. Perched high on a ladder, a man in a tuxedo chalked in the names of the horses in today's race on a large wall sheet. For an early 1900s pool room, the atmosphere was rather tame. Usually, the room would be filled with noise, the yelling and cursing of the losing gamblings and the shrieks and whoops of the successful. But this pool room was quiet. The men inside weren't crying out in happiness or despair. Instead, they were sitting, waiting. Yes, this particular pool room was different because this pool room was staged. Joseph Weil glanced at the clock, and as the minute hand ticked forward, a surge of adrenaline shot down his spine. He stood up, looked at the group of hired actors staged around him, and smiled. Showtime. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This week, we meet Joseph Weil, a Chicago con artist better known as the Yellow Kid. He swindled people both at home and abroad for over half a century. Today, in part one, we'll discuss Joseph's progression from small, simple cons to a large-scale deception that would go on to inspire the 1973 Best Picture winner, The Sting. Next week, in part two, we'll dive deeper into Joseph's infamous horse racing sting, a con that somehow managed to take one particular mark three times over. We'll also explore why he quit the game altogether, making the yellow kid one of the rare criminals to spend his final years in a nursing home instead of a prison cell. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus best that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. Today, we're beginning the story of Joseph Yellowkid Weil, a Chicago con artist whose schemes were so creative, one of them inspired the plot of a Hollywood film. Joseph was a snazzy dresser, a student of human nature, and a master con artist who swindled people for over 50 years. From the late 1800s to the early 1940s, Joseph embezzled unsuspecting marks out of their cash in a staggering variety of cons. In the 1940s, after a brief stint in prison, Joseph vowed to never again go behind bars and began living an honest life. He stayed true to his vow, and though he remained vocal about his crimes, he never committed another one. Joseph Weil was born on July 1, 1875, to Mr. and Mrs. Otto Weil, two honest, hard-working Chicagoans who owned and operated a local grocery store. While Joseph was a bright student all around, particularly gifted in mathematics, he considered himself to be a scholar of human nature. Growing up, Joseph noticed that his family constantly struggled for money, even though his parents put all of their time and energy into their store. It was apparent to Joseph that honest work would never yield prosperity, so he concluded that the honest life wasn't for him. In 1892, at age 17, Joseph quit school and began working as a collector for a loan shark. Ever the student of others, Joseph noticed that all of his co-workers seemed to be running their own side hustle. Bookkeepers, cashiers and collectors were all siphoning off company money for themselves. The young man immediately resorted to blackmail, accepting small sums from their stashes in exchange for keeping quiet. The money he made off his co-workers ended up amounting to more than his salary as a collector and only confirmed his suspicions that there was more to be made in trickery than honesty. Joseph's work in collections also introduced him to some of Chicago's premier con artists. They often utilized the services of loan sharks when they needed seed money for a scheme. One of those con artists was Doc Merriweather, a legendary snake oil salesman who peddled Merriweather's elixir. He claimed it was a cure for tapeworm. In reality, the magic elixir consisted of nothing but rainwater, alcohol, and flavoring. Doc and Joseph became friendly, socializing at the racetrack and sharing beers at the saloon. Doc found Joseph to be an extremely bright young man and eventually offered him a position that paid three times his collection salary. Joseph eagerly agreed. Doc Merriweather peddled his magic elixir through a traveling medicine show which toured rural towns outside of Chicago. He targeted these areas because farmers were his best customers. The symptoms of a tapeworm were very similar to the toll taken on the body after many a hard day's work outside. Doc would observe the farmers' lean faces, wrinkled brows, and exhausted demeanors, 
and declare with certainty that these men were infected by that nasty parasite. But fear not, it was their lucky day, for he was in possession of the ultimate cure. While working for Doc, Joseph usually performed one of two jobs at the medicine shows. He either spent his shift as a barker, which meant he helped attract a crowd, or as a shill, which meant he posed as a satisfied customer from another community. As the shill, Joseph claimed that the elixir had already worked for him, so well in fact that he had tracked Doc down to buy more bottles for his sick children. Doc would appear to be deeply touched by Joseph's story and offer him the bottles for free. The confirmation of the efficacy of the elixir combined with the humanitarian nature of its inventor sent men soaring toward the stage. They yelled and pushed and waved their cash in their outstretched hands, desperate to buy their own miracle cures. While traveling with Doc, Joseph learned the basic business of being a conman, and while he enjoyed participating in Doc's show, he was eager to craft his own cons instead of helping someone else. So he amicably parted ways with Doc Merriweather and traveled back home to Chicago. Once back in the city, Joseph met up for beers with a traveling salesman he had met while on the road. He was forming a scheme in his mind, but first needed to know the ins and outs of the salesman's business. He worked for a publishing company, and every summer he traveled from farm to farm selling subscriptions to one of their magazines, Hearth and Home. The salesman boasted that he was able to make enough money every summer to survive on for the rest of the year. Joseph smiled politely. Surviving was one thing, but Joseph knew of a way that the two of them could make enough money to really live. He asked the man if he could join him on his travels. Before leaving Chicago, Joseph stocked up on the supplies he and his new partner would need for their con, and soon they were off and running. Once they were on the road, Joseph explained his plan. In the 1890s, one year's subscription to Hearth and Home cost a customer 25 cents. Or you could buy six years for a dollar, but hardly anyone went for the six-year subscription. Generally, Joseph's partner sold one year's subscription at each farm he visited. He was allowed to keep half the earnings from each sale made, 12 and a half cents. Since customers were wary to purchase the six-year subscription, Joseph found a way to incentivize the larger sale. At first, he'd only offer the regular yearly subscription to the farmer and his wife. If they expressed interest, Joseph would then sweeten the deal with a special limited-time offer from the publishing company. For a dollar and a half, the farmer and his wife would not only receive a six-year subscription to Hearth and Home, but they would also receive a set of six sterling silver spoons, absolutely free. Joseph would insist that the publishers wanted to put this magazine in the house of every single farmer in America. And even though they knew they were going to lose money on this limited introductory offer, they expected to make it back in readership growth and advertising sales. This was a sufficient enough explanation and the farmers snatched up the subscriptions and the silver spoons without further hesitation. Although the farmer and his wife spent far more money than they'd planned to, they were thrilled with their purchase because they felt as though they'd gotten a bargain. Getting a deal while spending a lot may seem counterintuitive, but a 1995 study published in the Journal of Applied Psychology proved 
that bargain hunting isn't always motivated by financial gain. According to researchers Jonathan L. Friedman and Peter R. Dark, there are plenty of motivators that push consumers to seek and secure a deal, regardless of how much money they're actually saving or spending. One of these motives is quite simple. Getting a bargain makes people feel lucky. When we feel like we've been struck with luck, our brain's reward system gets triggered by the thrill, and a rush of dopamine floods our bodies, filling us with happiness. Dopamine is a powerful hormone. It's the chief neurotransmitter in the reward system. So while the financial reward from a bargain does affect our decision to buy or not buy, it's the emotional reward from finding that lucky deal that's really what's pushing us to pull the cash out of our wallets. The farmer and his wife were thrilled to be getting a set of silver spoons for far less than their actual value, but unfortunately, their dopamine deluge would soon come to an end. They would find out, eventually, that the spoons were not really silver. The spoons were, in fact, made of a cheap metal, and Joseph had purchased them for one cent each. With the enticing offer of the spoons, he was able to believably increase the rate for each six-year subscription by 50 cents, while only spending six cents to do so. This, however, was not enough for Joseph. He wasn't content in fooling only the farmer's wife. He had to con the farmer, too. Coming up, Joseph makes sure to swindle the whole household, then takes his talents back to the Windy City. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In the 1890s, blossoming con man Joseph Weil found his first racket in convincing farmers in rural Illinois to overpay for magazine subscriptions. But he soon expanded his con. After settling the magazine sale and handing over the silver spoons, Joseph would suddenly remember something that had happened on his way to the farm. He would produce a pair of eyeglasses from his pocket explaining that he had found them on the side of the road and asked, concerned, if the farmer might know who they belonged to. When the farmer would say he didn't, Joseph would click his tongue in disappointment. 
The glasses looked expensive. The person who lost them would probably pay three or four dollars at least as a reward for their return. Alas, Joseph didn't have time to search for the owner. He had to move on to the next town. At this point, the farmer would make his own offer. He would give Joseph three dollars for the glasses right now and promise to find the owner on his own later, presumably hoping to collect an even larger reward. The yellow kid would accept the farmer's offer gratefully and leave the house having swindled both members of the household. Of course, Joseph had purchased the eyeglasses back in Chicago. Each pair was worth no more than 25 cents. Joseph showed the other salesmen the ropes, and they quickly caught on to the scheme. They'd separate upon arrival in a region, knowing they'd cover more ground as individuals and split their earnings at the end of the day. Over one summer, Joseph and his partner were able to fool multiple rural communities across three states, making more profit each day than Joseph had made in one week working legitimately back in Chicago. Once again, Joseph confirmed his belief that trickery always trumps honesty. After spending a couple of years on the road, Joseph was exhausted from his nomadic cons. So, in the late 1890s, he returned home to Chicago for his schemes. He had learned a lot over the course of his travels, mainly that big cons were rarely successful when performed alone. Doc Merriweather had needed Joseph to act as a shill in order to convince customers of his tapeworm cure's legitimacy. Joseph had needed the salesman in order to obtain a job with the publishing company, not to mention double his profits. So Joseph set out to the saloons to make some friends. In his autobiography, entitled Yellow Kid While, Joseph asserted that fraternization amongst con artists was essential to the success of their craft. He wrote, I don't know how much truth there is to the old saying about honor among thieves, but it is an absolute necessity among con men. Joseph befriended plenty of other con artists, many of whom he would go on to work with throughout the course of his long career. Through these friendships, he learned that, out of professional necessity, con men did not solely socialize with their kind. In fact, it was in their best interest to acquaint themselves with people from all walks of life, to study them for their weaknesses, and to use them for their connections. It's a lot easier to get out of going to jail if you're friends with the police officer who's supposed to bring you in, or the judge that's about to sentence you. So Joseph continued to expand his social circle. He consulted with judges and police officers, and he shared beers with local politicians. This was Chicago, after all, where con artists and public servants not only interacted, they befriended one another. It was, in fact, an alderman who gave Joseph the nickname that would stick with him for the rest of his career. John Coughlin was alderman of the first ward of Chicago, as well as the owner of a local saloon that was a favorite hangout of the city's con artists. He was also known as Bathhouse John, or The Bath, epithets he acquired after an early job as a masseur in a bathhouse. Bathhouse John used to save the comic sheet for his saloon's copy of the New York Journal for Joseph, as he knew Joseph was a fan of one particular comic called Hogan's Alley and the Yellow Kid. One night in 1903, while Joseph casually read the comic sheet at the bar, his partner at the time, Frank Hogan, conned an unsuspecting Mark. Bathhouse John knew that 
Despite his apparent lack of involvement, Joseph was somehow in on the scheme. Frank Hogan and Joseph Weil became known as Hogan and the Yellow Kid from that moment on. Even after the two men eventually parted ways, Joseph's nickname stayed with him. In addition to the saloons, there was another location where one could always find men from all walks of life socializing together, the racetrack. The combination of money, adrenaline, and crowds made the racetrack a perfect place for a con. Joseph could con a wealthy mark, capitalizing on his already present desire to take risks and disappear into the masses after it was done. And then he could do it again the next day. For one such scheme, the Yellow Kid teamed up with William J. Winterbill, another well-known Chicago con artist. William was a large man, broad-shouldered, and when dressed in the right suit, he effortlessly passed as a successful businessman taking a day off from work at the track. Joseph, in contrast, was slight and small in stature. So small, in fact, that he could pass as a jockey. The con was relatively simple. William would approach a mark selected from the crowd and casually discuss the entries for the upcoming races. The yellow kid would then take his place in the betting ring and busy himself jotting down figures in a notebook. William would nudge the mark, point at Joseph, and ask if he knew who that was. The mark would say that no, he did not. William would act surprised. He would lean over to the mark and whisper that Joseph was a jockey who rode for Sam Hildreth, one of the most famous trainers at the time. William would cock his head, watching Joseph, and mumble something like, I wonder what he's figuring up. That was the yellow kid's signal, and at that moment, he would drop his pencil, letting it roll toward William and the mark. With William's encouragement, the mark would see this as a chance to get to know the jockey, so he would pick up the pencil and return it to Joseph. After an introduction and a confirmation that, yes, he was the jockey William had mentioned, William, or the mark, would ask what Joseph was writing in his notebook so intensely just moments before. Joseph would reply that he was calculating how much money he would win that day. William would act surprised. The mark would be surprised. How could he know he was going to win anything? Joseph would look around the betting ring surreptitiously. He would beckon the men to come closer. Then he would explain that he knew for a fact that his boss, the famous trainer, was going to make a killing that day. So that was the horse he was betting on. William and the Mark would look at each other. One man or the other would ask Joseph if he might be willing to give up the name of the winning horse. Joseph would refuse. He wasn't going to be disloyal to his boss and he didn't want word to get around. It could make the odds go down on the horse. William would then get an idea. He would ask Joseph how he felt about making their bets for them. That way, he never had to tell them the name of the horse and the odds wouldn't be affected. The yellow kid would pretend to consider this proposition and then cautiously agree. William would hand over a large sum, at least $2,500, and the mark would hand over all the money he had on him, which usually amounted to something similar. Joseph would promise to meet them after the race, and William and the mark would go off to the grandstand, speculating on which horse might be the winner. 
at some point, William would excuse himself from the mark and meet Joseph outside. Then they'd hightail it out of there. The mark would later approach the rendezvous point alone, where he would inevitably stand and wait, eventually heading home with nothing in his pocket and disappointment in his heart. Joseph considered himself a student of human nature. He felt that his exceptional ability to read people was one of the things that made him a great con artist. He took pride in his ability to scan a crowd of men and select from among them the perfect person to swindle. And then he would leave that guy in the dust, walking away without any remorse for what he'd done. After gleefully leaving a number of disappointed marks behind him at the racetrack, the yellow kid proceeded to move his game to the pool room. Although plenty of betting took place at the track, the biggest wagers were made in pool rooms across the city, which were outfitted with bars, cashiers, and Western Union operators who would report the race results to the room via telegraph wire. It was in one of those pool rooms that the yellow kid would execute his greatest con to date. Well, a room that appeared to be one of those pool rooms anyway. This was a con that would grow and bloom for several more years, taking one mark several times over and eventually becoming the inspiration for the con featured in the 1973 Best Picture winner, The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Finding a teammate for any con was important, but finding the right partner for this particular con was essential. For his intricate pool room scheme, the yellow kid chose to collaborate with notorious Chicago conman and former policeman, Billy Wall. Joseph met Billy at Bathhouse John's saloon, where they switched off buying drinks and telling stories about their shared profession. By the end of the evening, Billy expressed interest in helping the yellow kid on his next venture. Joseph said he'd think about it, then spent the next few days checking up on Billy's reputation. He found Billy to be quite well respected among the city's leading confidence men. He was an exceptional actor, quite convincing when it came to fooling marks. More important than that, he was extremely trustworthy. His only flaw appeared to be his lack of imagination, but since he could take direction, Joseph didn't see a problem with that. Joseph wanted to take point on the job anyway, finding as much pleasure in crafting the scheme as he did in carrying it out. He offered Billy Wall a partnership, and the two con men met up to go over Joseph's scheme in detail. Upon hearing the plan, Billy's eyes widened. He nodded, excited, and readily agreed to follow the Yellow Kid's lead. Coming up, Joseph embarks on his most impressive con yet, a scheme so dramatic it would become the plot of a Hollywood film over 70 years later. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. 
This episode is brought to you by Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 scientifically validated strains for whole body benefits, engineered for maximum delivery to your colon, helping to support a healthy heart, maintain optimum cholesterol balance and lipid metabolism, as well as reinforce an optimal gut-skin access to promote clear skin. Visit seed.com Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Now, back to the story. The Yellow Kid's infamous pool room con began with a simple newspaper ad. In the early 1900s, Joseph Weil placed a want ad in the Chicago Evening Paper, seeking someone willing to invest $2,500 in a very profitable venture. The ad also noted that the person must be reliable and able to keep this transaction confidential. He received several replies. He scrutinized each one, selected his mark, and filed the rest away for future use. The mark the yellow kid chose was a wealthy man who clearly liked to spread his money around town. He was the owner of one of Chicago's leading theaters, as well as one of the primary backers of an upcoming amusement park project. In his autobiography, Joseph calls the mark by a pseudonym, Marcus McAllister. Thanks to his discretion, to this day, we do not know who that mark truly was. Joseph called Marcus and told him that his brother-in-law was desperately in need of $2,500. He was being hunted by loan sharks after borrowing money to bet on horses, and if the sharks exposed his habits to his wife, she'd leave him. Marcus felt sorry for Joseph's brother-in-law, but didn't see where the profitable venture he had applied for came into play. Joseph explained, His brother-in-law worked for Western Union. He was an operator on the Gold Wire, which was the wire from New York that received the race results. He relayed the results to pool rooms across the city. Joseph was going to convince his brother-in-law to hold back the results from the pool rooms for a couple of minutes, giving Marcus a chance to place a sure bet on the winning horse. He'd win back his $2,500 and more. Marcus was interested, but still skeptical. He wanted to meet this mysterious brother-in-law and see for himself that everyone was set on the plan. Joseph didn't bat an eyelash. Of course Marcus could meet his brother-in-law. In fact, he would be happy to bring Marcus over to the Western Union offices so he could see him at work. Joseph took Marcus to the top floor of the Western Union building, where roughly 100 operators sat at their desks relaying wire messages from under the shade of their traditional green visors. Marcus and Joseph watched the men from behind a large window. At one point, Joseph raised his hand and a random operator waved back. Joseph got excited. He turned to Marcus and explained that his brother-in-law had just signaled for them to meet him on a different floor. In reality, the yellow kid had no idea who that man was. He took a chance by waving to a random fellow and, luckily, the fellow had politely waved back, probably assuming it was someone he knew. The yellow kid also didn't have a brother-in-law. When he dragged Marcus down the stairs and into a bathroom, the man waiting for them was Billy Wall, nervously clutching a green visor prop. Joseph introduced Marcus to Billy and explained their plan to him. Billy pretended to resist. He was too honest, and his spot in the gold wire was too prestigious to risk. Of course, the gold wire didn't exist, 
and Billy Wall was far from an honest man. Joseph and Marcus persuaded Billy that this was the only way for him to get out from under the thumb of the loan sharks. If he didn't work with them, he would lose his family. Billy finally agreed to their scheme, but he would only commit to doing it once. He also said he'd need to pay off the New York operator on the other end of the gold wire in order to keep him quiet. Marcus promised he'd invest enough that Billy could pay off both the shark and split his winnings with the operator 50-50. The men shook hands, solidifying their pact, and planned to meet up at the pool room the next day. All three men left that clandestine bathroom meeting certain they were about to make a ton of money. Only two of those men were right. Joseph felt no guilt about what he was planning to do to Marcus. Despite the fact that Marcus, by all accounts, had earned his money honestly by owning and operating a popular theater, the minute he answered that ad in the newspaper, Joseph lost all respect for him. Joseph constantly referred to his marks as suckers and spat distaste for anyone who had the audacity to try to get something for nothing. Throughout his autobiography, Yellow Kid While, Joseph often waxed poetic about the stupidity of mankind. Joseph said, Man has all the bestiality of the animal, but is cloaked in a thin veneer of civilization. He is inherently dishonest and selfish. The honest man is a rare specimen indeed. Not once in his autobiography does the yellow kid express anything but contempt for the marks he took, relaying a particular disdain for the men who bet on horses. Joseph said, Horse race suckers were the most gullible of all. Unfortunately, Joseph would have considered Marcus McAllister to be one of those suckers, although the intricacies of his pool room con ran so deep that calling Marcus gullible seems a bit unfair. As far as Marcus was concerned, these were the details of their plan. Billy would get the results of the race off the gold wire, but he wouldn't immediately send them onto the room's operator. Instead, he would flash a signal to the clerk in the pool room, indicating the horse that Marcus should bet on, and wait a couple of minutes before wiring the details of the race to the room's operator. In those couple of minutes, the clerk, previously paid off by Joseph, would relay the signal to Marcus, and Marcus would go make his bet on the winning horse. The race would begin, betting would close, and Marcus would reap his rewards. Or so he thought. The details of their plan, as far as Joseph was concerned, were far different. The first and main distinction being that the pool room was a complete sham. Joseph had constructed and outfitted this room entirely for his con on Marcus. The clerk was a fellow conman, the cashier was a fellow conman, the telegraph operator and the bartender and several of the gamblers were all conmen. In addition to hiring his friends, Joseph had populated the room with nearly 100 actors, all of whom had been told that this was a special audition for a producer who was casting a pool room scene for his next play. The day after his meeting with Marcus and Billy at the Western Union building, Joseph sat back in the pool room and observed all of his work with pride. The minute hand on the wall clock ticked forward. Marcus was on his way. The yellow kid stood up, 
and smiled at his room full of co-conspirators. Showtime. If this sounds familiar, that's because it's the exact plot of a film that came out approximately 70 years later, The Sting, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. What happened when Marcus settled into the pool room is what The Sting referred to as the shutout. In another room down the hall, one of Joseph's friends sat behind a working telegraph, furiously sifting through ticker tape until he found the results of the race. A horse named Colorado had won. Back in the pool room, Marcus wasn't aware that the race had even begun because Joseph had set the clock back by a couple of minutes. The con man working the telegraph called the clerk, letting him know that Colorado was the winning horse. Marcus watched as the clerk received the call, believing it to be Billy on the other end of the line, relaying the results from the gold wire. The clerk called out to the room, Colorado is delaying at the start, signaling Marcus who to bet on. He hurried up to the window, money in hand, ready to place his bet, but a couple of carefully placed con artists shoved him out of the way and got in line before him. Joseph hurried up to the window to place the bet for Marcus, but two more con men aggressively stepped in front of him as well. Just as Marcus managed to get up to the window to place his bet, the clerk announced that the horses were off and betting was closed. Shut out, indeed. The yellow kid had never planned to get Marcus's money in the pool room. If Marcus had placed his bet and won, he would have expected to walk away with over $10,000, and there was no such cash in the fake cashier's box. Marcus was disappointed, but he was also excited. He looked up at the results of the race, and Colorado had indeed been the winner. If not for those pushy other men, he would have been successful in his scheme. If only. After the race, Marcus and Joseph had to head over to the Western Union building to meet Billy and explain that they couldn't make the payoff after all. Billy was devastated. He was going to lose his family, not to mention his job. The New York operator would surely rat him out if he didn't get his payment. Marcus told him to hold on just one minute. It was no one's fault that their plan didn't work. It was simply bad luck. He would still pay Billy the $2,500 he needed and pay off the New York operator as well. Joseph and Marcus went to the bank where Marcus withdrew $7,500 and handed it over without hesitation. After all, they were going to work the scheme again, right? He could count on making his money back plus far more the next time. Expenses for the pool room had only cost $500. And there was, of course, no New York operator to speak of. So Billy and the yellow kid went home with $7,000 from this particular con. And Marcus was right about one thing. There would be a next time. In fact, the yellow kid would con poor Marcus McAllister three more times. By the end, he'd swindle the man out of almost $30,000. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Joseph Weil's story. We'll explore the evolution of the famous horse racing con, as well as Joseph's final transition from con artist to honest citizen. 
For more information on Joseph Weil, amongst the many sources we used, we found his autobiography, Yellow Kid Weil, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkhouse Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artist was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.